Amen. You can be seated. So we began last week into this series, this three-week mini-series, really looking at some very practical, everyday issues that we deal with in the world today. So uh, out of that, or we came to this out of our Gospel Roots series, our Vision and Value series. And, and what I realized is that, turn this off, you'd think I would learn. There we go. Um, we came to that, but I came to this ultimately, and I'm, I'm striving to encourage you to come to it and look at it and, and deal with it with me as well. Because if we really say that we value the things that we value, if we really say the things that, that the things of Christ, that, that those things that are important to him are important to us, then it shouldn't just be that we have them ideally floating around in our head as theoretical knowledge, but they should actually change the way we live. You know, we can't say we believe something if we won't act on it. We can't say that we value something if it doesn't, if it doesn't move us or, 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 or motivate us to, to act in some way. I mean, intellectually, we can know things like smoking causes cancer, right? You buy a pack of cigarettes and it says right on the side, the Surgeon General tells you, hey, this is going to kill you, right? I mean, we can know that. But do you know that still 42 million, over 42 million Americans still smoke? They either don't believe what the Surgeon General is saying or they think that I'm the one that will get by, which really is about them not believing that the Surgeon General is right. Well, we can believe intellectually that driving is safer or flying is driving, safer than driving. I'm going to get that right. Flying is safer than driving. We can believe that intellectually, right? I mean, you can see the numbers. You can see the statistics. But do you know that driving, the fear of driving is far less frequent? There's far fewer people that are actually afraid to get in a car and drive than there are people that get in airplanes. Fear of flying is way more popular. It usually ranks in one of the top ten phobias. Fear of driving, I couldn't even find where it ranks because it's so small. Fears, intellectually, I know. I know intellectually that a daddy long leg can't do anything to me. Now I will tell you, it is a, it is a myth that their, that their, their fangs are too small to bite you. And it's a myth that they are not venomous or that they have the strongest venom. It's a myth. They, Mythbusters proved it wrong. It's true that they can bite you. In fact, one bit, one of the guys on Mythbusters. But it doesn't do anything to him. Intellectually, I can know that. But put one on me and see what happens. It's not good. It's not pretty. It's like I know karate, you know, and I go at it. It's, it's not a good thing. Intellectually, I can know it. But I don't really at some level believe it. I don't really believe it. Intellectually, we can demonstrate. Intellectually, we can know that actually you are more likely to die of the flu than Ebola. But our country has been absolutely captivated and consumed over these last few weeks and months with this fear of Ebola and the virus. And in fact, here, I mean, here's the reality of how, how bad it got. And some of, some of the, the news was presenting was really news. Like, here's what's going on, and you need to know. Some of it, I think, was political posturing, like, let's get rid of the Democrats. And so, and, and I'm not opposed to that necessarily, but it's, let, let's get rid of them because they're tearing things up, and they're not handling this Ebola issue right. I think that by itself, though, is, man, that's just a terrible way to come at something, a terrible way, a ter- it's just a terrible strategy. Let's, let's put fear in the hearts of people so that they vote the way we want. It's horrible. 
But the panic, the, the misconceptions and the, and the, and the, um, the misinformation that was being spouted by credible, I mean, credible, big air quotes, credible news sources, this threw us into a panic. I mean, the, you guys saw about the, the doctor that went and uh, walked around. It's a doctor from Missouri. He's making us look good. Doctor from Missouri goes to the Atlanta airport, walks around in a hazmat suit that has the CDC is lying to you written on the back. He looks like a whack job. And we, we're lumped in with him. That's, that's our people. God bless us all. But the thing is, it's, it's not just people going into the Atlanta airport. It's, it's affecting people in our church. This fear, this panic. Our December team that's going to Senegal, they have been threatened with long extended vacations when, and, and not paid vacations, quarantines when they come back because they're going on mission. Because people are so afraid. And in fact, one of the, one of the people, and, and she made it public, so I'm going to make it public. I probably should have asked your permission, Kim. All right, good. So now I have permission to see how that works. Thank you for interacting. <laughs> it's good, I promise. It'll make you look good anyway. So she has a couple of doctors that tell her, she has a couple of doctors that tell her, you got no business going over there. And they start spouting off all this misinformation about how the, how the disease has mutated and now it's airborne and, and there's people not, not getting it in the 21 days that they're thinking that now people are, are, are waiting 40 days before they begin to show symptoms and, and there's just this terrible thing going on and people are dying. This is the worst epidemic ever to hit the face of the earth and just filling her with fear. And one of them, a professing Christian, one of them had the nerve to tell her that going on mission to Senegal was the same as walking into the middle of I-44 and just abandoning your wisdom and insight. As if going on mission and following God's call on the church that might lead us into a hostile, dangerous world is the same as being stupid enough to stand in the middle of an interstate. There's two different things. It's silliness. Absolute silliness. I want you to hear me say this, though. I mean, now that I've brought it up, I want you to hear me say, I take this very seriously. We take our work in Senegal very seriously. I believe, confidently believe, I, I can walk with you the, the pieces of the puzzle that God put together to get us into that country, and I, I can show you the fruit that He's bearing out of it. You see, He's doing a work through us, He's led us there. So I take it very seriously. It's very near and dear to my heart. And is it risky? Is there some risk involved in going? Absolutely. But there was risk involved in going before we ever heard of Ebola. But even as we face that risk, I don't want you to think that we, that we don't value the safety of our people. See, we're listening closely to the missionary on the ground there. We have communication, direct and constant communication with him. We know what's going on on the ground in that place. We know what we're sending our people into. We have an understanding. So we're not not being wise. We're being faithful. And there is a difference. And sometimes being faithful is really wisdom that doesn't look like wisdom to people who don't really believe God is able. You see what I'm saying? So here's the question, though. I mean, and this is this presents the thing because here's the reality: is people are acting like Ebola is the end of it. 
It's the end of the world as we know it. But I feel fine. You know why I feel fine? Because I know the God that's able to hold it all in His hand. We know the God that's able to hold it all in His hand. How do we react? How do, how do we react in, in crisis? How do we react when we face things like Ebola? And, and it's not just Ebola. The reality is every one of you sitting in this room, if you're not currently facing some crisis in your life, there's one coming. Okay? How, how do we face this crisis? What do we do? How do we prepare for the one coming? How do we, how do we react in the one that's on us? What do we do? If I value these things that I've said, I value that obviously that something should be different. What's it going to look like? That's what we're going to talk about. That's the question we're going to strive to answer today. Matthew chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're just going to begin reading. We'll start reading in verse 25. Jesus. This is Jesus talking. It's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Most popular, most powerful sermon ever preached. He says, in the midst of this sermon, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, we've got to kind of stop there and we've got to deal with this because you can't start and read read a verse that says, therefore I tell you, and not think about what came before it. Because otherwise you won't even understand why he's about to make this proposition, why he's about to teach this teaching. You have to understand the context. We have to understand that as Jesus is teaching this, he's not teaching by chapter and verse. He didn't like say, okay, now write down verse 24 or verse 25. He's he's just speaking straight through. He's got a line of thinking already happening. And so we got to know what that line of thinking is. Well, what is that line of thinking? I think, and you probably push back even further than this, but I think we ought to, let's just push back to the Lord's Prayer, which is still chapter 6, and it starts in verse 5. We're not going to read it all, but you know we've we've gone through this. It's a prayer that kind of puts things in priority. He calls us to pray first for God's glory, God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done. And then we begin to be concerned about our needs, our protection, our provision. Right? That's that's how he says it. Just pray in this way. Pray first for God's glory, then pray for yourself. And And then he moves from prayer and immediately starts talking about fasting. Not if you fast, but when you fast... Like when you take time to set aside the things of the world, when you take time to put those things aside that you can focus on God and be intimate and, and intentional with Him, when you put that stuff aside, when you, when you do this, this is the way you should do it. And He moves then from that, these, these aren't disconnected teachings, He moves immediately then to talking about that we're not to lay up treasures here where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven where they last forever. You see, in his mind, all of these things are linearly or, or eventually connected. There's this idea that as we pray, our motives should be first and foremost for God's glory. As we give up the things of the world that we might focus on him, as we live this life intentionally on this planet, we're not to be thinking about the things of this world, but the, the, the things to come and the life to come. He's got this whole perspective being built out, and he ends that teaching just before We come into this passage and he says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot be a child of the world and a child of God at the same time. You can't, you can't mentally 
work that out. You can't physically work that out. You're going to either one, hate one and love the other, or hate the other and love this one. You cannot serve both. You, you can't. It's impossible for us to do. We, we can't walk a middle ground. We can't stand on the fence and say, well, today I want to be about Jesus. Man, Jesus didn't really suit me today, so let, let's, let's get over here and be about the world today. He's saying it's physically impossible for us to, to, to serve two masters in this way. And because of that, because that is true, because there's this overarching eternal perspective that he's calling us to, because we can't in any way be connected with both at the same time. Because those things are true, I tell you, he says, do not be anxious about this life. Well, that raises the question, then, what does he mean? Be anxious about this life. What, what, what is he telling me not to do? Okay, I can't serve both, so don't be anxious about this life. Well, that, that word anxious, is, it's a word that talks about concern and, and being consumed by it and being, being uh, stressed out by it and being, making it your priority. Don't, don't, don't be so bothered with it or, or so prioritized around it that it causes you stress and it, it causes you worry. You see, what had happened, and I'll just use Kim as an example, because of what people were doing to her, because of the, the words they were speaking into her, she, they had taken this joy that she had seen as God called her to mission, as God called her to go overseas and began to met the needs, to meet the needs, to make that happen, as He began to provide money and as He began to provide time off and as He began to provide the energy and the desire to go, there's this joy that filled her. And then what happened out of that? As people began to speak these words... And fill her with this fear, it began to churn in her stomach. And they were robbing her of the joy of salvation. They were robbing her of the joy of, of walking with and knowing the provision of the Father. And so it, it, it's great, and I'm glad she did, because in, in that she recognized there's something wrong, and Seth, I need help. She didn't sit in silence and suffer, she reached out. We're able to reorient and we're able to reprioritize. But this is what happens to us as we try to serve two masters. We're either going to hate the one and despise the other or, or, or love the one and despise the other or hate this one and love the other. It's always going to happen. And so Jesus says, don't pick this life. Don't let your life, don't let your motives, don't let your values, don't let your desires, don't let the things that you long for in this world be prioritized over the things that He has for you. You see, as we come to this passage, there's a lot of people in here, and I know there's a lot of people in here that are going to hear this, and they're going to say, God, He's condemning me because I worry. I just feel so condemned. He's not condemning you. He's teaching you because He longs for you to know the beauty and the majesty and the bigness and the, and, and the power of what's on the other side of really trusting Him. He wants you to know the difference. He wants you to see it. And so He's saying, don't be anxious here. Don't let this world overwhelm you and, and, and be your first desire. He goes on. In verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and, and, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to, his, to the span of his life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. They prioritize these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus isn't denying that you have physical need. He isn't denying that there's not important things about this life that we live. He isn't ignoring the fact that we need to eat food. He isn't ignoring the fact that we're going to face crisis. He isn't ignoring the fact that there are struggles in this world. He isn't ignoring the fact that we are dependent upon the the the, the provision that this world has to offer. He's not ignoring that. He's just saying, don't let it be first. Your Father, your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's enough trouble today. There's no sense in being worried about tomorrow. All right, and here's some principles I just think we need to draw out of this. Some things that I think we need to learn from this that I think that Jesus would have us understand. First, a life ruled by anxiety and fear reveals a heart that does not really believe that Jesus is better or that God is able. I, I, I didn't know what songs Matt was going to sing today. I, I mean, I have the opportunity to see those. I had no clue. I mean, I guess I did know that we were going to sing Oceans, but man, when we came to that verse, that tagline, I don't know what it's even called, the end of the song where we were singing, Jesus, lead me where my trust is without borders. There's no boundary. Bring me to a place that my faith is. Do you realize what you're asking? Have you thought about what that prayer is? Let me walk upon the waters. We're asking God to do something in us, to change us, so that our life won't be ruled by anxiety and fear and thereby reveal that we don't even really believe, fully believe that Jesus is better or that God is able. He's not just simply condemning worry. I mean, He's telling us not to worry. He's telling us not to be be ruled by by the desires of this world. He's telling us not, not to be so anxious and stressed by the things of this world, but but his teaching, it reaches deeper than that. See, anxiety and fear, they're indicators. They're indicators of something much deeper. They're indicators that there's something else going on inside of you. They reveal what we value most. They reveal what's most important to us. You see, at its heart, at its at the center of it, at its core, this is not just a passage about do not worry. It's not a passage that says, stop it. Even though at a cursory reading, that may be what we hear. 
It's a call to something much more. more. It's a call to go even further. It's a a reality check that in our anxiety, we're anxious first because we've prioritized the things of this world over the things of the kingdom. And why do we stress about physical needs so much? Why is it that we work so hard for retirements? Why is it that we work so hard to build the comforts of this world? Why is it that we work so hard and beat ourselves up so much to to just fill our bank accounts and and to have the things that, that the world has to offer? Why is it that we do that? Why is it that we'll prioritize them over the things that He's called us to? Why is it that a Christian will look at another Christian and say, don't put yourself in harm's way. God wouldn't want that for you. But over and over and over and over, the Scripture tells us God has called us to it. You see, we, He wants us to see. He wants us to know. We worry and we fret in this world because we are consumed with the thoughts of how we preserve ourselves here. How we preserve this life. He's saying it's not about this life. It's, this is a wisp of smoke. It's that long in the whole scheme of things. Store up your tre- treasures in heaven, he says. You can't serve two masters, he says. Pray for God's will to be done here. Pray for His kingdom to come here. Pray for Him to be glorified here. He wants you to know the abundance of it. He wants you to experience the joy of it. He wants you to see it coming. But He knows that what what is now is fleeting. It's temporary. Your body, your life is for more than food, for more than clothing, for more than possessions. Second, I think we can learn in here as as we talk about that, it's not just about that we don't think Jesus is really better than these things. I think second is that we don't really believe that God's able. And really, it may not just be that we don't believe He's able, but maybe we don't believe He really wants to deliver us. Maybe we don't really understand or or believe that he desires to do these things for us. See, our anxieties and fears, they they, they don't just reveal what we value most, what we prioritize in our lives, what is most important to us. They help us see really what we believe in most, what we we, um, trust most. See, anxiety, I think anxiety really is is, is about us Fighting to maintain control. We, we worry because we recognize we can't keep hold of it all. We can't maintain our comfort. We can't maintain our approval. We can't maintain the, the perspectives that people hold of us. We can't maintain, our, I mean, every, every step of our path, it, there, there's this perception of control. If I work hard, then, then, then I'll be promoted. If I work hard, then my boss will approve of me. If I work hard, I'll be rich. Is God not able to do those things for you? Are you the one doing them, or is the one is God the one that makes them happen? You see, those are the questions. Those are the things I think it shows. And, and as we fight for control, we become anxious because we don't want to lose it. 
On the other hand, on the other hand, Jesus is telling us God wants and is able to do these things for us. You heard him say it. Look at the birds of the air. Birds of all things. I mean, he could have picked anything. Birds of the air. How significant are they in the, in the created order, do you think? They're not giving their lives to building retirement accounts. They're not giving their lives. I, and hear me say this. If you've got a retirement account, I'm not saying it's a terrible thing to have a retirement account. I'm saying it's a terrible thing to believe in the retirement account instead of the God that gave you the retirement account. They're not giving their lives. To, 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 to reaping and sowing. But every day, they get a worm. You know what? I don't think it's just the early bird that gets the worm. I think God makes sure that everyone he wants to eat gets the worm. Look at the lilies of the field. Oh, man, birds. And they're pretty low on the whole created order thing. I mean, it, really, in, in the scheme of things, I mean, birds are over here and, and we're up here. But even the grass, look at how he's adorned it. Look at how he's dressed it. Look at the beauty that he's brought from it. Even the grass of the field that burns up just like that in a fire, even that, what wouldn't he do for you? You see, I, I just think about this. This is a struggle that you're not alone in. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, we're not alone in. This has been happening since, since Jesus first started teaching. The disciples had seen him do amazing, miraculous things, change water to wine, heal people, you know. I mean, they'd seen amazing things, and here they are in the middle of a sea on a boat, and the storm comes up. And what did they do? You know the story. They were so afraid Jesus is sleeping peacefully in the front of the boat. I mean, just think about that. That says something. Storms raging, Jesus is sleeping. They're freaking Jesus, wake up. What are you thinking, man, to sleep right now? We're going to die. What was his response? Where is your faith? Peter, man, Peter, he's a pretty good dude, wasn't he? Saw Jesus walking on the water. Oh, if it's you, Jesus, call me to you. Jumps out of that boat, wouldn't we? I mean, that's that's the whole phrase of that song from Oceans. Let me walk upon the water. Jumps out of that boat, gets on the water, is walking on water. One of two people in all of history have done that. Him and Jesus. What happens? He sees the wind and he sees the waves and he gets afraid. You know what Jesus' response? Do you remember Jesus' response? Oh, you of little How different did they react when they began to be persecuted on Pentecost morning? Instead of hiding and cowering in a house in fear, they stood and began to boldly proclaim the message of the gospel. And the distinction is this. They had met their risen Savior and they believed. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they believed. That's the distinction. And that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to now. Look at what God has done. 
Look at what he has done. Look at him. Look at, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. Look at these things. And, and let me just add, if you need more convincing, look at the cross. He who gave his son for us. If he gave his son for us, what wouldn't he do for us? He tells us. He tells us. Look, he, don't don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Anxiety is the is is the most active way to get absolutely nothing done. You can worry about it. You can fret yourself over it. You can kill yourself trying to accomplish it. But who of you, who of us, can add one hour to our lives? Just an hour. I'm not talking about a day. I'm just saying an hour. It's the quickest way to get nothing done. But God, He can and will come through. He is your heavenly Father. And He knows your need. There is no need for anxiety in the face of crisis and struggle and need because God is able and will come through. But every time, every time we sit and worry and fret, it's it's essentially telling Him we don't believe it. We don't believe you're able. We don't even believe you want to. He's proven it. He has proven it. So, the answer to our question, how should we respond? How should we respond? I mean, if we are the redeemed, forgiven, blood-bought children of God, how are we to respond? I think Jesus tells us. Don't be like the Gentiles seeking the things of this world. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Hold an eternal perspective. Recognize that there is a there is a, a line that runs through every bit of this teaching that says there is something more He has for you. And if you get discouraged or if you get distracted by the things of this world, you're not going to even get to enjoy them as they come at you. Because you'll be so caught up and consumed and captivated by the, by the mud pie instead of the day at the beach. Hold an eternal perspective. Seek His kingdom. Prioritize His things. And the other is just this. Believe Jesus. I know that's difficult. I'm not saying believe Jesus and then acting like I got that all figured out. I I sang that song. I sang those songs with you. And if you go back and listen to those words, every one of them were the things we're going to do. Every one of them talked about how God had worked and how we're going to do things in light of that. And I'm going to tell you, I struggle with that just as much as you do. I struggle with believing in Jesus and believing Him. I struggle. I'm like the man who said, come and heal my child. And then said, he said, hey, this got to be by faith. And he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm that guy. And it would be best for us if we all recognize we're that guy. We know, okay, well, I believe Jesus. Seth, tell me, how do I believe Jesus? I think James tells us that. You don't have to take my opinion for it. James 1, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lack in nothing. You see, just believe Jesus enough to walk walk with him through this one. And when you get done, you'll believe him more. And you know, when the next one comes, believe him enough to get through that one. And you know what? When you get through that one, you'll believe him more. Walk with him. And I guarantee you, he will not waste your crisis. He will not waste the struggles you face. You prioritize his kingdom, his things. And you believe him and you walk in faith with him. And I promise you by the authority of the scripture that he will strengthen your faith. And you will believe. By the power of the spirit in you, you will believe. And all of this results, I think, in a life, a new life, a life that's changed from the outside in. A life lived in faith gives way to kingdom priorities and is given to kingdom purposes so that a woman like Kim, new believer really in the whole scheme of things, is able to hear of all the reasons she shouldn't go, but because she believes in what God has done and what he's called her to, she's able to walk in the midst of the crisis and say, I'm going. That's not just for Kim. That's every one of us. Let me just ask you, who is the God of your crisis? Are you trying to be? Or will you believe that he is? I want to read a psalm to you in closing. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam though the mountains tremble at its swelling that's Psalm 46 1 through 3 And because God is our refuge and strength, we need not fear. And if you doubt that, if you struggle with believing it, all I want to, there's one last encouragement for you, is remember the cross. He gave His Son that you might know this truth, that you might walk in confidence and courage, that you might walk in boldness and hope and joy and peace. He sent His Son. And Jesus died and bled. His body was buried. And we still remember it today because He didn't stay dead, but on the third day He rose again and He now says, Believe. Come believing, come remembering, trusting that this sacrifice is proof of God's 
ability and his desire to deliver you, to serve you in crisis.